We are in Matthew chapter 5, will be verses 13 to 16, 13 to 16, Matthew chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now uh, be with us. We invite you to come and permeate this space. Um, As we examine your word, we pray that your word would examine us, that we would be people who are open open to you messing with the insides of us, and then hopefully prompting us, compelling us to leave here conformed more to the image of your Son. Um, I place myself behind the cross, and I stand in you, asking that you would speak through me, um, that I would get out of the way of what it is you want to do this morning. We love you so very much in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So the most formative decade for me and who I am today is the 90s. All right, the 90s were great. Anybody else a product of the 90s? All right, just a few of us because we're Christ City and we're young. Okay, so, but there's enough of us here that can relate to all the wonderful things that happened in the 90s. Um, and for me, you know, there's all kind of things I could look to, but, but the thing that really resonates, when I think about my childhood, like from, you know, ages basically kind of 10 to 20 and those really formative years, the phenomenon that, that my life was a part of and my family invested in is the initials uh, CCM, Contemporary Christian Music, all right? And this is really like, this is, this is the glory land, all right? I mean, there's a lot of amazing things that happened in the 90s, but nothing more amazing than Christian rock and roll, all right? So it got its start in like folky in the 70s and started steamrolling a little bit in the 80s, but it hit the height of heights in the 90s. And so my family, uh, basically our vacations were going to something called Atlanta Fest. Has anybody ever been to Atlanta Fest? One, two people. All right, we need to talk and hang out and have a support group after this. So Atlanta Fest, if you don't know, Atlanta Fest is basically a Christian music festival. And it would be all these Christian bands, rock and roll bands and and others that come together and try to inspire you in your faith, right? And there would be something like around anywhere between probably two to 5,000 people who would kind of show up throughout, and they'd have it at Six Flags. So if you didn't want to come here about Jesus, at least you could like go ride roller coasters and then go hear Christian rock and roll. Like, this was great. And I just got three artists. I'm going to put on the, on the screen here. Um, I'm going to let you tell me who they are, all right? So here's, here's number one. Anybody know who this is? DC Talk. All right, get down with the DC Talk. I sure did in my adolescence, and it was fantastic. I found out that love was a verb, and I also found out what does it meant to be a Jesus freak, um, and, and took it to the extreme. All right, so DC Talk. Anybody still listen to DC Talk? Not enough of you. There's more to love here, all right? Um, so DC Talk, great. How about the next one? No, that's not me. Or my brother, the Newsboys. Uh, are, you, are you kidding me? See, here's the problem. No, I don't, I'm not listening to that person. They are from the 90s. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Whoever said that. <laughs> here's the thing. Newsboys are amazing, all right? If you've never done it, yeah, here's the deal. One of the guys from D.C. Talk, Michael Tate, went to the Newsboys. Eh, it's okay. But if you go back old school 
it, it will rock your face off, all right? I remember going to one show at Atlanta Fest and being so inspired by Jesus by this one event where the drummer, they lifted him up and turned him upside down, and he kept playing his, his, his music, uh, playing upside down, and I thought, Jesus is real. That's what I thought to myself. Like, this is amazing. It just, it just blew my mind. Like, God is real. I'm going to go back into the world now and serve him. All right, so here's the last one. Yes, come on. Anybody, anybody know how this goes, right? Like A to J. Addicted to Jesus. No? Like, this is a real thing. Like, we would, I would, we, me, I was the only person that would do this in my small town of 2,000 people. He had a song called Addicted to Jesus, all right? And I'd walk around doing A to J. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just thought, like, Carmen's amazing. He kind of looks like me, right? Um, it, Carmen was revolutionary, all right? Like, this was the man that really put, like, Christian music on the map, and he would go and do all these shows and concerts, and he would dance. I mean, like, he was Bieber before Bieber was born, you know what I mean? But just, like, Italian and old. But, like, this was fantastic. If you've never listened to Carmen, you're only going to try it one time, because after that, you'll stop. But Carmen, really influential. Now, here's what happened for me, though. These, um, these Christian rock shows, contemporary Christian music, was trying to take the best of the world and then apply like basically Jesus to it in a very overt way. And, and yet the irony was is that they wanted to remove themselves from the culture at hand. So like it was trying to, it was exemplifying a message that what's happening in the world is not okay, but we still like the things of the world. So let's take the best things of the world and let's go create a Christian subculture over here. And then let's all live in an echo chamber together and get ourselves really hyped up against the world that's coming against us. That may not have been what they overtly were trying to say, but that's kind of what was being said. And the main message I picked up as a child was to be in the world, but what? Not of the world which is a really bad statement, really doesn't work in the Bible, because God's never interested in you taking that and running with it. Be in the world, but not of the world. God never says that. He's never saying to them, I want you to be in the world, but don't be of the world. What he's saying is, I want you to be in the world and like, like just be with them. Matter of fact, I want you to be in the world, and I want you to inspire it, because if you're spending all your time having to be in this world, but one day trying to get out of it, that you're never going to inspire anyone you're just going to shame them and then convince them they don't want what you got. And so, so much of our Christian cultures in creating these Christian subcultures is very, very unattractive to the world around us. And yet, when we look at the narrative of the Bible, it's always trying to push God's people out into the world. Go and be a part of this thing. Go and see difference. Go and make change. Go and be me with others and be so attractive that they are inspired and say, I want this. And so this morning we're going to talk about what does it mean to inspire the uninspired. And we're looking here at this passage in Matthew chapter 5. We've just finished the Beatitudes. And if you've missed that, that's been a glorious, wonderful last few weeks for us as a church. You can really, I don't know about you, but you can really sense God doing something. Like in all these messages, it doesn't matter who's up here sharing, God is doing something. And we're clearly seeing that those, the the sat on, spat on, and ratted on, as Simon and Garfunkel would say, 
that these are truly the people that God is wanting to use to bring about change. I mean, we have those who are poor and sad and lowly, those who are desiring righteousness but never get it, those who are showing mercy but even to those who never deserve it, those who are pure in heart and wanting to follow God, those who are willing to be peacemakers, and then those who are willing to be persecuted. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. They all show up, and he's saying, okay, basically, all of you, I want you on my team. Like, these people are the ones in fifth grade in middle school when you're out in PE and they're choosing softball teams. Like, these are the ones that, like, are chosen last. All right, fine, give me the lowly one. Come be on my team, right? Okay, fine, come give me the person who's just so poor, they can't get it together. You know, like, we want superstars on our teams. But Jesus shows up, and he picks the, the lowliest and most forgotten of all, and he says, I want to do something, and I need you to be a part of it. You're the central pieces, most important pieces of this. He shows up, and he decides he's going to flip the script with these people. As one commentator said, he goes, these little people without any of the character or qualities humans insist on are the only ones who can actually make the world work. Jesus looks at these people, these beatitudes, and says, you're the ones that will make the world work. Not these others, you. And that's why, church, we have to pay attention. Because those that you keep assuming that are in the way are in broad daylight hiding and the ones that God's saying, I want to change the world with these people. The person you keep trying to get away from because their sadness is too deep is actually the one who's more in touch with life because they realize something. Life is tragic. And it also means that God is faithful. Those that you want to get away from that are so poor, literally, financially, making bad decisions, it seems, in life, or because what they were handed in life, you want to get away from them and say, I can't deal with that. That's too heavy of a burden. God looks at, and he says, nope, nope, nope. Those are the ones who intuitively get the kingdom. Watch them. Actually, go be discipled by them. We would never think about being discipled by someone who is poor. But that's what Jesus is saying here. These are the people who are going to change the world. Not the affluent, not the ones who are high and mighty, but those who actually have a lowlier place in life. And last week we saw that it is our need as a church to learn how to relate to these people, learn from them, and also be able to live in these ways to the best of our ability. And now Jesus shows up and he gives a message here, because you have to keep in mind, he's getting his team together. All right? He's getting the ultimate loser team together. He goes, now, here's the deal. Here's the mission. This is it. Listen. Go be salt and light. So let's look at this now because Jesus is saying this is the first thing he wants to get across to this new flip the script team, and we need to understand it. So first, let's just consider what does it mean to be salt and light, and then let's consider, like, how when we live those ways, it inspires the world. So first, let's just kind of break down salt and light. Look at verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Um, at this time in history, around, you know, this is the first half of the first century, there was a community uh, in the, called the Kuman area, which is like the Dead Sea area. And they were called the Dead Sea community. 
And it was a group of people called the Essenes who had moved out there because more and more um, Israel-Palestine had been infiltrated with a Hellenistic, a a Greco-Roman culture. And so what they looked at, they saw that as paganism, and they wanted no part of it. They started seeing all God's people making looser and looser decisions um, because they were more integrated into this kind of Hellenistic culture. And so they were a band of mostly men, some women, who decided to move out to these caves that were on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And they lived there, and their desire was to live as pure and holistic as possible to the laws that God had given this Dead Sea community. And they're picking up traction. Matter of fact, John the Baptist is considered an Essene, one of the people from the Dead Sea community, which when John the Baptist shows up, he's wearing like furs and like he's really like nappy and he's like just like stealing honey from bears. And like that's how he rolls. And you're going, okay, these are the people who really are going after God. And maybe I don't want that. So they weren't necessarily the most attractive group of people. Matter of fact, they were very appalling to many, and they lived such a separatist lifestyle. Now, the irony is this. They were living by the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea was the main resource for table salt. Like, this is where you would go and get your salt. Has anybody ever been to the Dead Sea before? Okay, so a couple of us. So, nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It has no outlet. Matter of fact, if you tried to get in it, you just can't even get under the water. You just kind of stay on top right? Like it's a very intense body of water. And it preserves really well though, like because that's one of the functions of salt. Salt is meant to preserve things. And Jesus is in many ways talking about this community that's picked up all this traction over the last 200 years, this Dead Sea community. And he's saying, listen, salt is important. You're the salt of the earth, And yet, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. Now, here's the deal. If salt doesn't have this outlet and it's only trying to preserve, it's only one half of its use. Because if you're only using salt to preserve something, eventually you become mummified, right? You become so stagnant. And he's speaking to this group of people saying, you are doing so great and so well out there. And yet, and yet, no one can come near you. You have removed yourself from society. You have actually lost the plot of what salt was meant to be used for, not just to preserve, but also to bring spice and flavor into the world. In your bulletins, there's a quote from John Stott. He said, God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? The church spends so much time, right, trying to preserve this. We've got to preserve our righteous ways and be really, really obedient. And what we do is we create these basic echo chambers that 
we are just kind of saying, well, Jesus is Lord. Another person who's, who's, who's also a Christian says, well, Jesus is Lord, and, and I want to serve him this way. So you get so caught up in like parroting back to each other, like what does it mean to follow Jesus, and you get so afraid to take it outside of those little rooms that eventually you become so stagnant because all you're focused on is you. You get so focused on your faith and your walk with Jesus and getting strong in Him. It's almost like you want to kind of get really work out and get really built up so that you can go handle the things out in the world. And Jesus is like, that's silly. Like, that's not how this works. Because salt isn't meant just to preserve. Yes, there's an importance to preserving. But yet, if that's all that you're trying to be, stay focused on, you're actually going to go bad. You're going to lose what you were trying to do in the first place, and that is be able to reflect me in this world. Now, most of us here came to Christ City because we didn't want to live those ways. Because to live opposite of that is to live what we have called being missional, like living your life on mission, the mission of God in this world. Like a lot of us in this room do not have a problem being out in the world. And I love that. I love that this church is so open. Like, we're not afraid of Cooper Young Fest, right? This happened yesterday. We're not afraid of going out there and having a good time. We're not afraid of going and enjoying drinks with friends. We're not afraid of actually engaging with art and having, like, a critical and understanding eye. Like, so many of you are um, very upperly mobile in that way. And I love that. I love our churches filled with that. And, and yet, there's also um, almost like a problem that we have. Because we can get so focused on wanting to be out in the world that we actually lose our ability to penetrate the world. Like, we get so caught up in wanting to be in the world and have some spice to life because that's the other side of salt. Salt not only preserves, salt seasons. That's what salt's trying to do. It's trying to bring flavor to the world around us. But we can get so caught up in trying to bring flavor to the world around us, we actually find ourselves denying the whole reason why we're out in the world. Like, you're not out in the world just to, like, give it high fives and, like, just ride the waves. You're actually called to be in the world to make a difference because God has a plan for this world. He has a plan to redeem it and renew it, but the thing is, he wants you to be a part of it. Humans are a part of this master plan, these beatitude people we talked about. So many times what happens is we say, well, I'm going to go out and hang out with my friends, but at the end of the day, there's nothing distinct about you. You just look like everybody else. You just act like them. Well, you know, I've had a couple of drinks. Maybe, maybe one more will be fine. Well, you know, maybe we can kind of just speak very um, in a degradating way of others around us, right? Jump on whatever bandwagon it may be. Now, both sides to this, both sides to this, whether you try to hold yourself up for holiness at the expense of connection or whether you try to be so spicy for Jesus in the world that you actually lose the ability to penetrate it with truth, both sides fall flat. And both sides end up losing like its function, its ability to bring change in the world. One, one commentator put it this way. Jesus' followers are supposed to be salty, which indicates that it actually is moral goodness that adds spice to the world rather than moral evil. 
Losing your saltiness means acting in such a way that you give your loyalty to another Lord and become worldly. Christians who have lost their saltiness are those who have lost the purity of their loyalty to Christ and his way. Like, here's what happens. We get more caught up in being progressive or conservative than we do being followers of Jesus. We get more caught up in being apropos culturally, being in the know, being on the cusp of things, right? Or maybe even like really killing it with this career, I don't know, whatever it may be for you, then we do actually want to follow Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to hear from me this morning. That's not wrong. You weren't expecting that. So, you're expecting me to tell you, you're a bunch of sinners, quit doing that, all right? What I want to tell you, and what I want to kind of like break down here is, it's actually, you're not wrong for living those ways. You're just really, 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 really going to miss out. So many times we break down life into black and white, right or wrong. But the Bible isn't as interested in its stories it's telling us as you being wrong and now trying to be right or vice versa. It's more interested in telling you there's a really unhealthy way you interact with the world around you. And if you keep doing that, you're only going to experience more and more heartache and sadness in ways that there's no hope. And humans can't live without hope without wanting to die. So, for example, let's just kind of break this down here for a second. When he talks about when salt loses its saltiness, um, it is good for nothing. It gets trampled under the feet. Um, This idea of losing its saltiness in, in Greek is actually the word foolish. That when salt loses its taste, when you lose your taste, you actually are now a foolish person. That's what it's saying there in verses 14 and 15. It's kind of strange, right? Like when you lose your taste, you are now a foolish person. But when you kind of zoom out a little bit from this passage and you kind of put framework around Sermon on the Mount, it makes sense. Now, two things to know about Sermon on the Mount. One, it is this collection of Jesus' sermons, what he wants to say, what he wants to get across, but he begins it with this framework of saying, okay, I'm going to gather all of you on the front end to listen to me. And I got a lot of things to say. And then when we get to the end, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus is saying there's only gonna be two options at the end of these sermons I'm giving you. You're either going to listen to what I have to say and apply it to your life and do it and be like a wise person, which by the way, in the Bible, wisdom is considered a moral person. Like wise and moral interchangeable in the Old Testament. A wise person is a moral person. Someone who is consumed with the ethics of how this world works. A foolish person, it says in Proverbs and in Psalms, says in their heart there is no God. 
So a foolish person is someone who says, I got power, I got know-with-all, I appreciate what you have to say, Jesus, but I'm going to go this direction. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Sermon on the Mount is a recapitulation of Sinai in the Old Testament. See, Jesus is getting up on a mountain just like Moses went and got up on a mountain. Jesus has a bunch of things about how the way the world works and interacted with God. So does Moses that's handed down to him by God. So the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus trying to shed light again on the laws given from, given from the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing about the laws. So many times we want to make the laws into how do I stay right before God or how do I stay wrong before God? How do I stay in with God or, how, or maybe I'll get out from God? But that's not what the laws are for. Once you consider something, God's people, before they received the laws, were already in. How do we know that? Because God saved them from slavery. That was salvation. God says to them before they do anything, hey, I want you as mine, and I'm going to slave you from the Egyptians. So God rescues them from slavery, and this was their salvation story. So that means the laws weren't about how they're going to now get salvation. The laws were about how they're going to interact with the world around them and this God. That's why I want to show you this in Deuteronomy Chapter 11, verse 26, it says, and this is, after, this is after Moses from God has given God's people all these laws, all these laws about how you're to live in the world. And here's then what God is saying. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. See, the whole point of the law was to bring God's people down to a decision. You're either going to choose blessing or cursing. The healthy way to interact with the world or an unhealthy way to interact with the world. See, blessing in the Bible means I'm with you and I'm for you. That's what blessing means. We talked about that. So that means cursing is the opposite. I'm not for you. I'm not with you. And there's a good chance if you go down this path, you're going to bump into me and we're going to be at loggerheads together. See, when God's people came out of slavery, they had no idea of how to interact with the world around them. Anybody ever been, you like, this is rhetorical. I'm not asking to raise your hands. But if you've ever been in an abusive relationship, if you've ever come out of some kind of relationship, whether it be with parents or spouse or partner, whatever it may be, you start assuming the world works in a certain dysfunctional way. That this is how every relationship of your life will always be. Until you actually do some counseling, some therapy, you start talking about your life, you start getting healthier, and you realize, wait a second, there are things called boundaries. Boundaries are really important. Boundaries let you know that you don't have to always be um, managing your life because of someone else's feelings. It's really important. If you haven't gotten to boundaries in life, I definitely suggest them. They're great. <laughs> but they're also really hard because it takes a while to get to boundaries because you're always second-guessing yourself. And is this actually a healthy way to do this? Like, for example, for, as being a pastor, I just never had boundaries for years and years. I would just think that my life was for the church and my family should sacrifice. And therefore, I'd get really mad at Suzanne or anyone else in my family who got in the way of me doing ministry. 
until I realized that's a really sick way to go about life. So that means as much as I care for you all, right, that at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to manage my life based on what you think about me. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to keep myself from you. But there's a lot of you that might, like, for example, man, I don't like it when Robin does this, or I like it when Robin does that instead, or whatever it may be, or it could be anyone. It's so easy to want to live off the fear and go, okay, then I don't want to upset this person here. Let me try to make decisions ahead of time so they'll be okay with me. That's a really dysfunctional way to live in life. Would you agree? Now, what God shows up and does is he gives his people boundaries. He says, here's the way we're going to interact with each other. This is what health looks like. It's not just do whatever you want. Now, you take that and you apply it here to Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying this. If you live with salt and let your life bring both preservation to who I am and holiness, but also season and be with other people to help bring change in the world, if you'll listen to me and what I have to say next, then you're going to find yourself interacting with the world in a way that is beautiful, with boundaries, with change. But if not, you will be a foolish person. Which makes the next half of this sermon series, starting the beginning of October, so important. Because we're going to start breaking down all these little bits and pieces that Jesus has to say and really listen to it to turn the gym again and again and again and again and to see what it is he has to say to us. Because the reality is this, if you don't listen to what he has to say, you're going to keep living a foolish life. And it's not going to be that you're going to hell, but it's going to be that you will miss out. You will not see change. Now, here's the other part to this. You not only have salt, but you also have light. Look here at verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Light, this metaphor of light, is used regularly in the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 1 when God creates light. It's used excuse me, in Isaiah 60 when he's talking about his presence is like a shining bright light. It's used in Isaiah 49 when Israel is called a light to the nations. It's used in Psalm 119 when God's word is a light to our feet. It's even used again in Psalm 112 that whenever we do deeds of obedience, we are walking in the light. We even have the great DC Talk song. See how I brought that full circle? Great. Um, From 1 John that I want to be in the light as you are in the light. That Light is what God was always wanting, this metaphor, powerful metaphor to do in the world, is for his people to be light. But here's what happened. You see, God founded this group of ragtag slaves in the middle of nowhere in North Africa. He rescues them and says, I want to take you somewhere. I want you to be a nation for me, and I want you to be a lighthouse of the world. What's the point of the lighthouse? Both to bring guidance in the dark but also to let you know how to get there. And time and again, this was the sin of God's people. They were unwilling to truly be a light to the nations. They kept trying to take their light and hide it. Like it was the most hipster thing ever, right? Like we found this great, amazing thing. Let's don't tell anybody about it. 
Like, this is going to be the most amazing speakeasy, and no one will ever figure out how to get in there. Like, they were doing speakeasies as a nation before we could even think about it in New York. And it's really sad, because what happened in turn was they were creating a self-preservation, not wanting to bring spice to the world, and thus lost their saltiness, and literally were getting trampled on by kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. They weren't willing to invite others into this. They wanted to nail it down just right, get their discipleship honed in perfectly. If I just get discipled the right way, if I just learn all the scriptures, then I'll go out. No, you don't. You keep trying to do the same thing. You become mummified. You become tasteless. You're unwilling and unable now for the world to relate to you. And this is what happened to Israel. And in turn, in turn, this is what Paul calls out in Romans, they became utterly racist. They became so self-aggrandizing of who they were and what God was doing, they had lost their call that they were to be a lighthouse for the world to come to. Because God's plan always after Genesis 3 was the nations. When he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm after nations. It's not just about you having a kid, it's about me having lots of them through you, the nations. In Isaiah 2, I want to show it to you. It's so beautiful. It goes in line with so many things here. The Beatitudes, even the title of our sermon series, The Path of Jesus. Just keep all this in mind as we read Isaiah 2 together. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall follow it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is why it's so important that we don't get ourselves so tied up with a nationalistic understanding of our faith. Because there's no perfect country that's going to be able to do all the things that's being said here. It's only going to be God's people willing to live in such a way that they bring change from the inside out. Because here it's saying, God's plan is to do away with war. God's plan is to be so creative with how we go about things in the world that we're turning things that were weapons now into ways to like cultivate. And that's what's attractive to the world around us. Uh, ben Hancock, one of our own, he, he's over at our AV team. Um, did we put a picture up here? That's great. Um, a few years ago for our Leviticus series, There Will Be Blood, um, we did an art showing at the end of it. And Ben, um, who is an artist and works with wood, uh, he created this um, piece of art. And the idea of that it's a gun that's been turned to a rake, that will turn our swords into plowshares. We'll turn our weapons 
into ways that we bring cultivation and life to the world around us. We'll quit destroying the world and start cultivating the world. We'll get back to what we were designed to do. It's a beautiful piece of art. It's really amazing. And it really symbolizes perfectly what being a light to the nations is meant to be. You see, God's people were always meant to bring inspiration to the world. Not to buy into one side or another side, but to create a third side. Now, for example, if you consider yourself a left wing or a right wing, and that's how you identify yourself in life, you're completely missing out on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus, when you read him, he's both conservative and progressive, isn't he? He has both going on. If you think he's only conservative, you really need to step out of your little echo chamber. If you really think he's only progressive, you really need to step out of your little echo chamber. Because he's both. Both are happening here. And he's never willing to settle for one side or another. That's why Jesus, if you read him, he rarely ever gives answers. He probably gives like five answers total. When you read people asking questions, what's he doing? He's always taking a question and turning it into a better question. He's always elevating the conversation. He's always trying to inspire something. So religious leaders come to him and say, what are the greatest laws? What, how, how do you sum it all up? And then what does Jesus say? What do you say? How would you talk about this? And they say something, yada, 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 and Jesus goes, that sounds great. You're not far from the kingdom. And we're all going, what? That's not how this works. You're supposed to give like a whole bunch of answers and resolve all the tension. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm not interested in resolving all the tension. I'm just interested in elevating the conversation. See, if your whole mission in life is to resolve the tension on how you look at things, it's a very unattractive way to go about it. You're losing your saltiness. And then in turn, when you're trying to shine a light, people are going, I don't want that. See, here's the litmus question for you. Do people want what you got? If they wanted your holiness, don't you think they would have like bought into that by now? If they wanted your coolness for Jesus, don't you think they would have wanted that by now? Oh, I'm just going to really preserve my life, or no, I'm going to really be integrated in culture. Neither side is going to do it for you. At the end of the day, Jesus is going, I want you to elevate this conversation, because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to elevate all these things. You thought it was one way, I'm going to say it another way. You just simply want an answer, I'm going to give you another question. When people get near your life, do they want what you got? If not, what are you doing with your life? If all that you can give them is a bunch of platitudes about Jesus, but never real engagement from the heart about being a human being, they're probably not going to want what you got. Or if we think that maybe if I just know enough craft brews, right, and enough craft culture, then maybe that'll really let them know that we're safe, secret handshake, we're good to go. But has that really, like, done much for others? I remember driving in the car with my dad in my early 20s. My dad is a um, nominal Muslim, uh, more of a universalist, brilliant man, um, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I remember growing up, I would try, I would literally say to him, you are going to hell, all right? Like, you get this. You and the devil are going to, like, be best friends forever, all right? So, like, let's, let's, like, let's make some changes, all right? New plans in life. And, like, never worked. Like, I never could convince him to do differently. 
And I remember like praying fervently to the Lord one day. I was like 17, 18. I was like, God, just convince this man and let him know that you are the way, the truth, and the light. And all of a sudden, I just kind of felt a nudging, you know, like that nudging deep inside. And here's what it said. Shut up. (laughs) I was like, what? And it's like God's going, shut up. Like, just stop it. Stop it. Just stop talking. Like, everything you got to say right now is ridiculous, Robin. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, is that you or is that my mom? You know, like, like I just couldn't take, like, what is, no, I need to speak truth here. And then I remember going, okay, I'll shut up. And I remember for the next four years, I didn't talk about Jesus one time. I remember us driving around the car in D.C., that's where my dad lives. And I was like, okay, dad, like, where are you going to land? Whose team are you on? Team Jesus, Team Muhammad, what's happening here? And, uh, and my dad's like, okay, well, Robin, 22-year-old, um, here's the deal. I was really burned by what I saw growing up in my country. And I don't really know if that works. But I'll tell you this, I was really burned by what I've seen in this country and from your family. They keep calling themselves Christians. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch your life for the next 30 years, and if I like what I see, maybe I'll do that. And I thought, well, that's no pressure. <laughs> like, this will work out just fine, just fine. <laughs> isn't that a wonderful response? And isn't that the response the world's giving? They're not interested in our do-betters. They're not interested in our little holy cliques. They're not even interested in our coolness and hipness of Jesus. They're just interested in a better life. They're interested in the conversation of the world being elevated to something better than one side or another. They're interested in not just grace and not just change, but grace that changes things. And that's why our consistency of our love and our nurture matters. No pressure, but at the same time, it's a lot of pressure. And that's why it's so important when you get it wrong to own up to it. The best thing, Brennan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Christ with their lips but walk out the door and deny his lifestyle. And that's what an unbelieving world simply calls unbelievable. Like the reality is this, we're the single greatest cause of people not wanting Jesus. It's not the devil. It's not the horrible influence of secular, quote-unquote, culture, which please quit using that word. It is simply this, that we have a really uncompelling life. It's just really uninspiring a lot of times. John Kennedy Toole was a, um, a writer from Louisiana back in the 50s and, and 60s um, who, at the age of 31, um, uh, killed himself. He, uh, he put the garage door down, kept the car running, fell asleep. That was it. What people really didn't know about John Kennedy Toole was that he was a prolific writer. Um, posthumous, he actually won a Pulitzer. His mom, going through the rummages of his office, found this manuscript called A Confederacy of Dunces. Anybody ever read Confederacy of Dunces? I've been working on it for four years now, okay? I keep going, like, I'm going to get there one of these days. Um, And 
So he won this Pulitzer because of that. But then as they kind of started researching more, they found another book that he had written at the age of 16 called Neon Bible. The idea behind Neon Bible was that him growing up in the Southeast in this really religious fundamental culture, he was really put off by what he saw. Like people were just like, they justified everything religiously like whether it was their racism or their bigotry or their, you know, hardlining on certain issues, everything was just justified by their religion. And he was sickened by what he saw. It really turned him away. Matter of fact, in his book he goes, I was getting tired about what the preacher called Christian. Anything he did was Christian, and the people in his church believed it too. If he stole some book he didn't like from the library or made the radio station play only part of the day on that Sunday, or take somebody off the state to home, he called it Christian. I never had much religious training, and I never went to Sunday school because we didn't belong to the church when I was old enough to go. But I thought I knew what believing in Christ really was, and it wasn't half the things the preacher did. So here's the thing. People in many ways know what actually following Jesus is supposed to look like like outside of this room. They're not like this wide, massive, like uneducated groups of pagans. Like people know, especially in the Southeast, they know. And there's a reason why they're de-churched because what they've seen is really uninspiring. But Jesus is saying to us, I want to flip the script and I want to use you to have an inspiring life. That's why at the end he goes looking at verse 16, in the same way, let your, shine, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, here's a litmus test. If whatever you're doing for Jesus inspires people and makes them want to glorify God, keep doing it. And if whatever you're doing isn't, consider something different. And this is why we want to listen up for the next few weeks, because Jesus is going to give us some inspiring ways. See, morality that brings goodness and wholeness in the world is actually really inspiring. It's a beautiful message. And so Jesus is going to elevate the conversation and say, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to help inspire the world, because they're really uninspired what they're seeing. Let's be honest. People are really uninspired with a red or a blue right now politically, aren't they? And you hear people talk about it time and time and time again, that there's going to be this change, reformation, whatever. Maybe that'll happen. But people are always looking for more inspiration. The question is, do you have a life that others now can be inspired by? And it's not going to simply come for your, from your holiness, but it's also not going to come just simply from your relevance. It's going to come from a life that's willing to say, here I am, God, use me. And let me be a light for you as imperfect as I am to be turning swords into plowshares. Let's pray. Father, as we now go before you and your table, I I pray that our hearts would be very open, very, very open, 
to the conviction that perhaps like what we're doing and how we're living and how we're going about our faith actually just maybe isn't all that great. That if our lives aren't turning somehow swords into plowshares, if we're not creatively elevating the conversations, if we're always looking to have the trump card of Jesus through our political religious views, maybe we're just missing out on something. Because you seem to always want the conversation to keep going. For people to have a shot at seeing you in such a way that they want to now, like, glorify you and come near to you. And so this morning, as we now come before your table, we want to make ourselves very open and say, God, help us. Jesus, be with us. And we pray that we be able to bring the worst of us to the best of you and find there is truly plenty of grace for our lives to be shaped and changed by you, even right here and right now as you promise us your presence at this table. In Jesus' name. Amen.